Welcome to ASMR Poems, a space of sound and literature for you to drift away in the night time or whenever you feel like taking a nap. My name is Delfina and I will be your guide tonight this journey into the depths of sleep while you slowly fall into the arms of Morpheus. Tonight I will explore the profound words of one Hector Alam Poe and I will read you a poem and a short story. So close your eyes Focus on your breathing. Let it go in and out. Let it go in and out. This is a voyage like no other. Let us begin. Are you ready? Serenade. So sweet the hour, so calm the time. I feel it more than half a crime when nature slips and stars are mute to more the silence even with lute. At rest on ocean's brilliant days, an image of Elysium lies. Seven Pleiades entranced in heaven formed in the deep another seven, Endymion nodding from above, sees in the sea a second love. Within the valleys dimmed and brown, and on the spectral mountain's ground, the wearied light is dying down, and earth and stars and sea and sky are redolent of sleep as I am redolent of thee and thine enthralling love my Adeline but list O oh list so soft and low thy lover's voice tonight shall flow that scarce awake thy soul shall deem my words the music of a dream Thus why no single sound too rude Upon thy slumber shall intrude. Our thoughts, our souls, O God above, In every deed shall mingle love. And now, Berenice. My companions told me I might find some little alleviation of my misery in visiting the grave of my beloved. Translation from Ebn Sayyad Misery is manifold. The wretchedness of earth is multiform. Overreaching the wide horizon as a rainbow, its hues as the various of the hues of that arch as distinct too, yet as intimately blended, 
overreaching the wide horizon as the rainbow. How is it that from beauty I have derived a type of unloveliness? From the covenant of peace, a simile of sorrow? But as in ethics evil is a consequence of good, so in fact, out of joy, is sorrow born. Either the memory of past bliss is the anguish of today, or the agonies which are have their origin in the ecstasies which might have been. My baptismal name is Egeos, that of my family I will not mention. Yet there are no towers in the land more time-honoured than my gloomy grey hereditary halls. Our line has been called a race of visionaries, and in many striking particulars, in the character of my family mansion, in the frescoes of the chief saloon, in the tapestries of the dormitories, in the chiselling of some buttress in the armory, but more specially in the gallery of the antique paintings, in the fashion of the library chamber, and lastly, in the very peculiar nature of the library's contents, there is more than sufficient evidence to warrant the belief. The recollections of my earliest years are connected with that chamber and with its volumes, of which latter I would say no more. Here died my mother, herein was I born, but it's mere idleness to say that I had not lived before, that the soul had no previous existence. You deny it? Let us not argue the matter. Convince myself I seek not to convince. There is, however, a remembrance of aerial forms, of a spiritual and meaning eyes, of sound, musical yet sad, a remembrance which will not be excluded a memory like a shadow, vague, variable, indefinite, unsteady, and like a shadow too in the impossibility of me getting rid of it while the sunlight of my reason shall exist. In this chamber was I born, thus awakening from the long night of what seemed, but was not, non-entity, at once into the very regions of fairyland, into a palace of imagination, into the wild minions of monastic thought and erudition. It is not singular that I gaze around with me with a startled and ardent eye, that I loitered away my boyhood in books and dissipated my youth in reverie. But it is singular that as years roll away, and the noon of manhood found me still in the mansion of my fathers, it is wonderful what stagnation fell upon the springs of my life, wonderful how total an inversion took place in the character of my commonest thought. The realities of the world affected me as visions, and as visions only, while the wild ideas of the lands of dreams became, in turn, not the material of my everyday existence, but in very deed, that existence utterly and solely in itself. Berenice and I were cousins, and we grew together in my paternal halls. Yet differently we grew, I, ill of health and buried in gloom. 
She, agile, graceful, and overflowing with energy. Hers, the rumble on the hillside. Mine, the studies of the cloister. I, living within my own heart, and addicted, body and soul, to the most intense and painful meditation. She, roaming carelessly through life with no thought of the shadow in her path or the silent flight of the raven-winched hours. Berenice, I call upon her name. Berenice, and from the grey ruins of memory a thousand tumultuous recollections are startled at the sound. Ah, vividly is her image before me now, as in the early days of her light-heartedness and joy. O gorgeous yet fantastic beauty, O self amid the shrubberies of Arnheim, O naiad among its fountains, and then, then all is mystery and terror, and a tale which should not be told. Disease, a fatal disease, fell like the moon upon her frame, and even while I gazed upon her, the spirit of change swept over her, pervading her mind, her habits, and her character, and in a manner the most subtle and terrible, disturbing even the identity of her person. Alas, the destroyer came and went, and the victim, where is she? I knew her not, or knew her no longer as Berenice. Among the numerous strains of maladies superinduced by the fatal and primary one which affected a revolution of so horrible a kind in the moral and physical being of my cousin may be mentioned as the most distressing and obstinate in its nature, a species of epilepsy not unfrequently terminating in trance itself trance very nearly resembling positive dissolution, and from which her manner of recovery was, in most instances, startlingly abrupt. In the meantime, my own disease, for I have been told that I should call it by no other appellation, my own disease then grew rapidly upon me, and assume finally a monomaniac character of a novel and extraordinary form, hourly and momentarily gaining vigour, and at length obtaining over me the most incomprehensible ascendancy. This monomania, if I may so term it, consisted in a morbid irritability of those properties of the mind in metaphysical science term the attentive. It is more than probable that I am not understood, but I fear indeed that it is in no manner possible to convey into the mind of the merely general reader an adequate idea of the nervous intensity of interest with which, in my case, the powers of meditation, not to speak technically, busied and buried themselves in the contemplation of even the most ordinary objects of the universe. To muse for long unwearied hours, with my attention riveted to some frivolous device on the margin, or in the typography of a book, to become absorbed for the better part of a summer's day 
in a quaint shadow falling aslant upon the tapestry or upon the floor. To lose myself for an entire night in watching the steady flame of a lamp or the embers of a fire. To dream away whole days of the perfume of a flower. To repeat monotonously some common word until the sound, by dint of frequent repetition, cease to convey any idea whatever to the mind, to lose all sense of motion or physical existence by means of absolute bodily acquiescence, long and obstinately perversed in. Such were a few of the most common and least pernicious vagaries induced by a condition of the mental faculties, not indeed altogether unparalleled, but certainly bidding defiance to anything like analysis or explanation. Yet let me not be misapprehended. The undue, earnest and morbid attention thus excited by objects in their own nature frivolous must not be confounded in character with that ruminating propensity common to all mankind and more specially indulged in by persons of ardent imagination. It was not even, as might be at first supposed, an extreme condition or exaggeration of such propensity, but primarily and essentially distinct and different. In one instance, the dreamer or enthusiast, being interested by an object usually not frivolous, imperceptibly loses sight of this object in a wilderness of deductions and suggestions issuing therefrom, until, at the conclusion of a daydream often replete with luxury, he finds the incitamentum, or first cause, of his musings entirely vanished and forgotten. In my case, the primary object was invariably frivolous, although assuming, though the medium of my distempered vision are refracted and unreal importance, Few deductions, if any, were made, and those pernaciously returning in upon the original object as a centre. The meditations were never pleasurable, and at the termination of the reverie, the first cause, so far from being out of sight, had attained that supernaturally exaggerated interest which was the prevailing feature of the disease. In a word, the powers of the mind, more particularly exercised, were, with me, as I've said before, the attentive, and are, with the dreamer, the speculative. My books, in this epoch, if they did not actually serve to irritate the disorder, partook, it will be perceived largely, in their imaginative and inconsequential nature of the characteristic qualities of the disorder itself. I will remember, among others, the treatise of the noble Italian Coerlius Secundus Curio, De Amplitudine Beati Regni Dei, Saint Augustine's great work, The City of God, and Tertullian's De Carne Christi, in which the paradoxical sentence Mortus este filius, credible esquia ineptum est, et sepultus resusi rect, 
certum esquea impossibile est, occupied my undivided time for many weeks of labors and fruitless investigation. Thus it will appear that, shaken from its balance only by trivial things, my reason bore resemblance to that ocean crag spoken by Ptolemy Hephaestion, which readily resisting the attacks of human violence and the fiercer fury of the waters and the winds, tremble only to the touch of the flower called Asphodel. And although to a careless thinker it might appear a matter beyond doubt, that the alteration produced by her unhappy malady in the moral condition of Berenice would afford me many objects for the exercise of that intense and abnormal meditation whose nature I have been at some trouble in explaining, yet such was not in any degree the case. In the loose intervals of my infirmity, her calamity, indeed, gave me pain, and taking deeply to heart that total wreck of her fair and gentle life, I did not fail to ponder, frequently and bitterly, upon the wonder-working means by which so strange a revolution had been so suddenly brought to pass. But these reflections partook not of the idiosyncrasy of my disease, and were such as would have occurred under similar circumstances, to the ordinary mass of mankind, true to its own character, mm. my disorder revealed in the less important but more startling changes brought in the physical frame of Berenice, in the singular and most appalling distortion of her personal identity. During the brightest days of her unparalleled beauty, I most surely had never loved her. In the strange anomaly of my existence, feelings with me had never been of the heart, and my passions always were of the mind. Through the grey of the early morning, among the trizzled shadows of the forest at noonday, and in the silence of my library at night, she had flitted by my eyes, and I had seen her, not as the living and breathing Berenice, but as the Berenice of a dream, not as a being of the earth, earthy, but as the abstraction of such a being, not as a thing to admire, but to analyze, not as an object of love, but as a theme of the most abstruse, although desolatory speculation. And now, now, I shuddered in her presence and grew pale at her approach yet bitterly lamenting her fallen and desolate condition, I called to mind that she had loved me long, and, in an evil moment, I spoke to her of marriage. And at length the period of our nuptials was approaching, when, upon an afternoon in the winter of the year, one of those unseasonably warm, calm and misty days, which are the nurse of the beautiful Halcyon. I sat, and sat, as I thought, alone, in the inner apartment of the library. But, uplifting my eyes, I saw that Berenice stood before me. Was it my own excited imagination, or the misty influence of the atmosphere, 
or the uncertain twilight of the chamber, or the grey draperies which fell around her figure, that caused it so vacillating and indistinct an outline. I could not tell you. She spoke no word, and I, no worlds could I have uttered a syllable. An icy chill ran through my frame. A sense of insufferable anxiety oppressed me. A consuming curiosity pervaded my soul, and sinking back upon the chair I remained for some time breathless and motionless, with my eyes riveted upon her person. Alas, its emanciation was excessive, and not one vestige of the form and being lurked in any single line of the contour. My burning glances at length fell upon her face. The forehead was hide and very pale, and singularly placid, and the once jetty hair fell partially over it, and overshadowed the hollow temples with innumerable ringlets, now of a vivid yellowed and jarring discordantly in their fantastic character, with their reigning melancholy of the countenance. The eyes were lifeless and lustreless and seemingly pupilless, and I shrank involuntarily from their glassy stare to the contemplation of the thin and shrunken lips. They parted, and in a smile of peculiar meaning, the teeth of the change beneath disclosed themselves slowly to my view. Would to God that I had never beheld them, or that having done so, I had died. The shutting of a door disturbed me, and looking up, I found that my cousin had departed from the chamber. But from the disordered chamber of my brain had not, alas, departed, and would not be driven away the white and ghastly spectrum of the teeth, not a speck on their surface, not a shade on their enamel, not an indenture on their edges, but what that period of her smile had sufficed to brand in upon my memory. I saw them now even more unequivocally than I beheld them then. The teeth! The teeth! They were here! They were here! And there! And everywhere! And visibly and palpably before me! Long, narrow, and excessively white, with the pale lips writhing about them, as in the very moment of their first terrible development, they came the full fury of my monomania, and I struggle in vain against its strange and irresistible influence. In the multiplied objects of the external world, I had no thoughts but for the teeth. For these I longed with a frenzied desire, all other matters and all different interests became absorbed with their single contemplation. They, they alone, were present to the mental eye, and they, in their sole individuality, 
became the essence of my mental life. I held them in every light, I turned them in every attitude, I surveyed their characteristics, I dwelt upon their peculiarities, I pondered upon their conformation, I mused upon their alteration in their nature, I shrouded as I assigned to them in imagination a sensitive and sentient power, and even when unassisted by the lips, a capability of moral expression of Mademoiselle Salle. It has been well said, que tu étant des sentiments, and of Berenice, I more seriously believe que tu étant étant des idées. Des idées. Ah, oh, was the idiotic thought that destroyed me, des idées, and therefore it was that I coveted them so madly. I felt that their possession could alone ever restore me to peace in giving me back to reason. And the evening closed in upon me thus, and then the darkness came, and the tarried and went, and the day again dawned, and the mist of a second night were now gathering around, and I still sat motionless in that solitary room, and still I sat buried in meditation, and still the phantasma of the teeth maintained its terrible ascendancy, as with the most vivid hideous distinctness it floated about amid the changing lights and shadows of the chamber. At length there broke in upon my dreams a cry as of horror and dismay, and thereunto, after a pause, succeeded the sound of troubled voices, intermingled with many low moanings of sorrow or of pain. I arose from my seat, and throwing open one of the doors of the library, saw standing out in the interchamber a servant maiden, all in tears, who told me that Berenice was no more. She had been seized with epilepsy in the early morning, and now, at the closing in of the night, the grave was ready for its tenant, and all the preparation for the burial were completed. I found myself sitting in the library, and again sitting there, alone. It seemed that I had newly awakened from a confused and excited dream, I knew that it was now midnight, and I was well aware that since the setting of the sun, Berenice had been interred. But of that dreary period which intervened, I had no positive, at least no definite comprehension. Yet its memory was replete with horror, horror more horrible from being vague, and terror more terrible from ambiguity. It was a fearful page in the record of my existence, written all over with dim and hideous and unintelligible recollections. I strived to decipher them, but in vain, while ever and anon, like the spirit of a departed sound, the shrill and piercing shriek of a female voice seemed to be ringing in my ears. I had done a deed. What was it? I asked myself the question aloud, and the whispering echoes of the chamber answered me. What was it? On the table beside me, 
burned a lamp, and near it lay a little box. It was of no remarkable character, and I had seen it frequently before, for it was the property of a family physician. But how came it there, upon my table, and why did I shudder in regarding it? These things were in no manner to be accounted for, and my eyes at length dropped to the open pages of a book, and to a sentence underscored therein. The words were the singular but simple ones of the poet M. Zayat. The Shibant Mihai Sodales, Shi Repulcrum Amicae Visitarem, Curas Meais Aliqualuntum Fore Levatas. Why then, as I perused them, did the hairs of my head erect themselves on end, and the blood of my body become congealed within my veins? There came a light tap on the library door, and pale as the tenant of a tomb, a menial entered upon tiptoe. His looks were wild with terror, and he spoke to me in a voice tremulous, husky, and very low. What said he? Some broken sentences I heard. He told me of a wild cry disturbing the silence of the night, of the gathering together of the household, of a search in direction of the sound, and then his tones grew thrillingly distinct, as he whispered me of a violated grave, of a disfigured body enshrouded, yet still breathing, still palpitating, still alive. He pointed to garments, they were muddy and clotted with gore. I spoke not and he took me gently by the hand. It was indented with the impress of human nails. He directed my attention to some object against the wall. I looked at it for some minutes. It was a spade. With a shriek I bounded to the table and grasped the box that lay upon it. But I could not force to open, and in my tremor it slipped from my hands and fell heavily and burst into pieces, and from it, with a rattling sound, there roll out some instruments of dental surgery, intermingled with thirty-two small, white and ivory-looking substances that were scattered to and fro about the floor. This was ASMR Poems. Hopefully you're sound asleep by now. But if you're not, please do recommend this to your friends or your family if you have liked it, and to your foes if you have not. You can listen to this in Spotify, 
Apple Podcast, your favorite podcast app, and also YouTube. In the morning, or whenever you wake up, don't forget to subscribe. And have a wonderful rest. <laughs>